Well, praise God, and we praise God for that wonderful time of worship. Well, wasn't that creative? That was a great song, and certainly the name of Jesus is beautiful and wonderful. We want to take our Bibles this morning. We want to turn to one of the resurrection passages in the Bible in John chapter 20. And as we turn there, I want to remind you that our faith, our Christianity, really rests upon three different pillars. One is a person, Jesus Christ. The second one is a book, the Bible. And the third one is an event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, when the Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, he really gave us really what the priority of the Bible and the the gospel is when he said this. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins with accordance to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Ravi Zacharias, the scholar, has said, he said there's two things about the resurrection that are extremely important. Number one, did it happen? And number two, so what? Well, the last few Easter's we have been concentrating on the actual event of the resurrection. Did it really happen? Because certainly in my generation, as I was coming up through college, that was the, that was the question. Nobody ever questioned, at least uh, in recent times, if the resurrection was actually true. And so we felt like if the resurrection is true, then there was a so what, that it changed everything. If the resurrection were true, if Jesus Christ indeed rose from the dead, that changed everything. But the more modern generation would say, well, okay, maybe it changes everything, but how does it change everything? And so this morning I want to concentrate a little bit more on the so what, because in Ephesians chapter uh, 1, Paul said this, the Apostle Paul once again said, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, we're the saints. We're the ones that's been saved by the grace of God. Jesus Christ has come to live inside of our heart. So the Bible refers to us not as Christians, that's not until later in the book of Acts, but they were referred to as saints. And so what is the inheritance? What is the riches of the saints? What do you and I have because Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Well, we're going to look at six basic things, and it's not an exhaustive list, but there's an there's a exhaustive list in a way that comes through John chapter 20. Six things that I pull from this passage alone that tells us about the riches of our inheritance. Now, in John chapter 20, just to bring you up to date a little bit on the book of John, there are four Gospels. Uh, the Gospel of John really concentrates on the deity of Christ or the fact that he's God in the flesh. In fact, the Bible then says at the end of this book, if I could just reach ahead in verse 31 of the chapter, it says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. And so John wrote that you and I would understand that God, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and believing that it would lead us to eternal life. And so that's the idea behind John. Now, he's, he's given us an account, his account, of the resurrection. And what's very important for us to realize is that he was an eyewitness. Now, that's very important. You and I believe in eyewitness accounts in every other fact of history. In fact, there's no one here watching this that was alive when George Washington was the first president. 
but there were eyewitnesses to that. Or Abraham Lincoln being the 16th president during the Civil War, or the fact that there was a Civil War in the first place, or people went out west and ranched and farmed the land there. We, we don't know that because we weren't there, but we believe eyewitness accounts as they came through history. Uh, we don't know about World War I, World War II, unless, most of us at least, World War II, unless we find some eyewitness accounts. So we believe eyewitness accounts, they're, they're extremely important. And then it's important to have an eyewitness account in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses as well. For example, if somebody said, um, well, I know, I know that there was, uh, there was no Vietnam War, for example, and I hate to pick on that, for example, but there's no Vietnam War, uh, and somebody says, no, I, I fought in the Vietnam War. You're, you're lying. You're not telling the truth. You're, not be you're bearing false witness about that. You see, there's someone still alive that could account for that war. Well, these people, John, Paul, the Apostle Peter, others, were sharing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just as an eyewitness, but in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that would say, no, Peter or John, John, you've, you've written this, but I know it's not true because I lived in that lifetime. I lived during that time that you're talking about, and it never happened. No, you couldn't find that at all. In fact, there are 500 people, the Bible says, alone at one time that saw the resurrected Lord. And so he wrote as an eyewitness. He was held accountable by other eyewitnesses as well as he writes this passage. And I want us to look at the resurrection, the account of it, the historical account, but within it, what we gain by the hints, you might say, running through this passage. Because we know right now we're going through a rough time. It's not just family problems, sickness, and everything that goes around, and, and funerals. We've had uh, some funerals going on right now in our, in our own church this past week, these past few weeks that have nothing to do with the virus. Life just continues to go on, and problems come our way. Now, on top of that is the virus. And so right now we're going through all kinds of adjustments in life, and we want to know, God, how can you help me? How can you help me, not just out of this mess, but how can you help me internally? Because you and I both know we have an idea of what makes us really happy in life, what brings us joy in life, what fulfills and completes our life. But is that accurate? Once we receive the things that we're seeking to gain happiness in our life, are we really happy? Well, I have it on many, many, many accounts that sometimes, most of the time, we come up short. We've sort of put our ladder up against the wrong building. We've climbed to the top and realized that the happiness is not really there. And so what we have here is our riches and inheritance, but it's also a way, the way, where we can get to the point of really having a fulfilled, joyful life. So let's look at it real quickly. In verse 1, we find the calling of faith. And I, I invite you to get your Bible out and follow along with me because I'm going to read almost every verse of this chapter. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The first thing we find here, the first thing we find here in just a moment is the fact that there's a calling of faith. And we're going to find out that, that faith is not just a gift, but it's a gift that keeps on giving, a gift that is foundational to anything, all other gifts that we might receive and we will receive. 
But Mary was there the first day of the week, that's Sunday. She was there, the first one there in the dark. And you can find that uh, she saw the stone rolled away. And she says, so she ran and went to Simon and Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which is John, wanting to be humble and just not calling his own name throughout the entire book. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Automatically, she believes that someone stole the body. Uh, a lot of grave robbing wasn't real popular back then, but it, it did occur. And so she automatically thought that, and she did not really believe that Jesus Christ's prophecy of him rising from the dead really came true. And so here's a skeptic right off the bat. And we, we look at this and says, so Peter went out with the other disciples and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the first tomb. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. And so he outran Peter, but he was a little shy about it. But Peter was always the one that was very bold. He says, then Peter, Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Not at all indicative of grave robbers who would really just ransack the grave. Then the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. They, they just didn't believe it. They just didn't buy into it. Now, it says here in verse 8 that he believed, and that's the same Greek word we would have for our faith. And the, the word believe, as John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, same word, but it means something a little bit different here. And the fact that he believed that Jesus was gone, but he didn't know why. Because it says they didn't believe the scriptures. They just went home. In one gospel, uh, Peter just finally said, I'm going fishing. They just went back home. They just did what they were normally going to do. But we find here that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're going to find that faith, a calling of faith, really did come to their heart. Psalm 16.10 says this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. The greatest miracle that's ever occurred, and the most important miracle that ever occurred was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without it, dear friends, we don't have a faith. And without it, we don't have the riches of our inheritance to go along with it either. Listen to 1 Corinthians. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresented God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it, were, if it is not true, that, he, that the dead are not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see, Jesus Christ died on the cross. And there's no question what the Bible teaches here. The Bible teaches as Jesus Christ died on the cross, he hung there between those two thieves, and he took the nails in his hands and his feet. That was payment. That blood was the payment for our sin. He was paying our debt sin on the cross. But the resurrection authenticated it all. Because Jesus said, you will not leave me in Sheol. He said in the New Testament, he said, you tear down this temple and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. Even 
those who opposed Jesus had a guard at the tomb because of what he had said. And so really the unbelievers were believing his words a little bit more than the actual disciples were here. But we find that it's kind of like a receipt. It's a receipt to say, look, this is authentic. For example, you go into a place like, I don't know, Sam's. You go, I don't want to leave anybody out, BJ's, Costco. You know, let's just call all of them out. Um, you're going to put a lot of stuff in your buggy. You know, you go there to buy in bulk, right? And, and maybe, um, if I can grab this real quick, maybe you grab some of this on your way. And if you did and you, and you bought it in bulk, fooey on you. Um, you know, because the rest of us have, have having to do without. But you have a receipt, and you've got to hang on to that receipt. Because as you go out the door, you've got all this stuff piled in your buggy, in your cart, and you, you flash out a receipt. Now, I could say, well, look, I don't have a receipt, but i got a card. This card says that I'm the senior pastor of Cross Life Church. Doesn't, doesn't that do? No, no, that won't do it. Oh, no, I'm, I'm a pastor. I wouldn't steal anything. Well, I'm sorry. You've got to show your receipt. And so you think to yourself, well, well maybe, maybe uh, this Home Depot, I've got a, I, this receipt's from Home Depot. How about this? I got one from Home Depot. No, you have to have the receipt from that store, the specific receipt in order to say what I have, what I've done and what I've bought is mine. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that receipt for what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. He died on the cross for our sins. And when he rose again on the third day, he became a living savior. Now, when I say that faith, this kind of faith of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you on the cross, believing that he rose again on the third day, the Bible says that it's necessary to believe that in order to be saved, in order to have Jesus Christ into your heart and have eternal life. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. So you've got to have faith. The Bible tells us that we've got to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead in order to be saved in Romans 10, 9. And so, we find this to be crucial, and yet faith is a gift because everything that we have comes from God. And the Bible says in the book of James that everything that we have is the gener- out of the generosity of God. It's the gift from the Father of lights who is from above. And so this gift that God gives us, without it, we can't really experience the other riches. The Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. How are we going to hope in the future? Hope for eternal life. How are we not going to fear? How, how, how are we going to get over our fear of death? How are we going to trust God for answers to prayer? How are we going to endure during the trials of life without faith? Now, what do I mean by a gift? Well, let's take salvation, for example, real quickly. When you and I come to the place of receiving Christ, it's because God first drew us to himself. The Holy Spirit of God came and convicted us of what was wrong with our life, convicted us of God's goodness, convicted us of the fact that we needed to to humble ourselves at the cross and be saved. We then received that, that gift. We received it. We could have chosen not to, but we received it. Now, we've received a little bit of faith and then a little bit more faith as God revealed himself to us until finally we came to the point of receiving Christ into our heart. It's a gift. Once we become a Christian, we need more faith. How do we get more faith? Well, God's speaking to us through the Word. The Bible says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So the more faith you have in God and what He can do, the more relaxed you're going to be in life. 
the more trusting you're going to be of him in life. The more you're going to be able to endure in life. The more promises you're going to be able to claim. The more purpose you're going to have in your life. All of the gifts of God really flow from this gift of faith. But we can't stop there because there's plenty more to go. Notice beginning in verse 11, the introduction of the presence of God. You know, God, uh, when, when Jesus came in Matthew 1, it says that it was Emmanuel. His name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And we find that way back in the book of Genesis, uh, the Bible tells us that God's original design for us was to have a relationship with God to sense the presence of God in our life. Well, let's look in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping. She was profusely crying to the point of tears running down, wailing, you might say, tears blocking her vision. She said outside the tomb, and she wept. She stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. This gives us the image of Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw the vision of heaven and the two, the, the seraphims flying around the throne of God. But it's also a symbol, and I believe really the main symbol here is the Ark of the Covenant. Because in the Ark of the Covenant, you had this chest that was overladen with gold, and you had two angels on the top. And the idea as in between the two angels was the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God reigned in the Old Testament for the king, being king and lord of the Jews. This was a symbol. Now, think about it just a moment. You've got one angel in the tomb, one at the head, one at the foot, and at looking at it, you can see the symbolism that John and, by the way, God was reaching. He was saying, now we don't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore just for the Jewish people, but rather the Jewish people and Gentile people have been brought together with God in one, later called the church, and here the Ark of the Covenant with the two angels, one on either side. We have a new throne. We have a new king. We have a new nation. Everything starts now brand new, and now we see something really special going on. Look with me. Let's follow in verse 13. They said to her, woman, what are we, why are you weeping? She said, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, you can imagine her crying. She's looking at the angels, and suddenly she turns around and just glances at somebody, and we'll find out later that she thought it was the gardener. So she's just looking around, looking back, and Jesus could have the, the ability to disguise himself in some way, some subtle way. And people oftentimes kind of see what they're looking for anyway. So she's looking around. She turns back to look at the angels, and she's saying, they've taken my Lord. And later, Jesus said in verse 16, Mary calls her by name. And then in verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, because she was grabbing and she was holding on to him. He says, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Now, we look at this passage and understand there's two verses in this passage that are two of the hardest to interpret maybe anywhere in the Bible. But let me just give you, in a nutshell, without going through a 30-minute explanation of this, basically, Jesus was not saying, you can't touch me because I haven't gone to heaven yet. 
having ascended up into heaven because other people after this touched him. But what he was saying was this, don't cling to me now. Don't cling to me as a sense of I'm about to leave you. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. In fact, he would spend the next 40 days teaching his disciples. So he said, go get the disciples. Time's a-wasting. I've got 40 days here. Go and get the disciples. You don't have to cling to me. I'm going to be here when you get back. We can see here the symbolism behind it all of the presence of God in our life. The Bible says that Emmanuel will be born to us as a title. God with us. Jesus was with us or with the disciples all through his lifetime, uh, or rather the last three and a half years of his life. Now, what about now? Well, later he said this. He says, he told the disciples, he said, it's expedient that I go away. Because if I go away, I'm going to send my spirit down to this earth. And he did. And he did it on the day of Pentecost. And when he did that, the Holy Spirit of God, Christ's spirit, third person of the Trinity, came to live inside of our hearts when we receive Christ. Now, the heart, again, is the is an inner causal core of who you are. And so you invite Christ into the inner causal core of who you are. And at that point, the Spirit of God comes to live inside your heart. And the presence of God is completed in your heart because you're always going to be with Him all the way when He takes you to heaven. Now, with that, with that presence of God comes the power we all want that. We, we want, I'm not talking about superpower, have power over individuals. That's, that's a really a carnal, fleshly thing, not, not really for Christians. But we all want the power to live the Christian life. In fact, I've heard it many people say to me before, well, Pastor, I'll receive Jesus into my heart as soon as I can clean up my life, as soon as I can live better, as soon as I can do better. Because what if I'm one of those people that receive Christ and don't follow through? Well, what about that? I want to skip over just a few verses and come back to them. But in verse 22, it says this. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Here's the other, uh, here's, one of, here's one of the other verses hard to interpret. Not the toughest, but a little bit hard. Receive the Holy Spirit. This is the same word, the same idea at least. Um, in the Hebrew, where it says in the Old Testament that God breathed into man the breath of life and he became a living soul. And so it is God's breath, God's, God's voice into their life. But this is symbolic of the prophets of the Old Testament. And he's saying, just like he said back in Matthew 16, when he says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He's telling them, I'm going to give you the first voice of the gospel message. And I'm going to breathe on you and anointing you with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, they did not actually apply that in their life until the day of Pentecost. Uh, many days later, when they were praying, 120 were praying in the upper room. And the Holy Spirit of God came upon them. And the Bible says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter began to preach the gospel where 3,000 people received Christ. This is real power. This is the real change in their life. Now, you look at it and you think to yourself, well, I'm going to receive the Spirit of God in my life. What does that mean? Well, the Holy Spirit is there to recreate the life of Jesus in you all over again. And what I mean by that, what the Bible teaches about that, is that not that we're going to be perfect, because we're always going to be on that journey, but it gives you the power to live. He gives you the power to live the Christian life. 
The fruit of the Spirit, the Bible says, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, self-control. Those are the kind of things that are going to make us happy. Those are the kind of things, the, the love of God, loving other people, the joy that we have in our heart, the peace that we can experience, knowing that all of our sins have been forgiven. Those kind of things are going to take us to a new throne, to a new kingdom, to a new happiness and a joy in our life that we can't simply find by seeking things, other things out on our own that maybe God doesn't want for us. And so it's not about cleaning up my own life. It's about me surrendering to God. In fact, that's the opposite of the, of the gospel. The gospel is me surrendering to the cross of Jesus Christ, what he did for me on the cross, so the Holy Spirit of God could come to live inside of me so I can live a brand new life. Well, this power, we look at it, the day of Pentecost, the disciples were just simply never the same. They came in as cowards, sort of, really, and left out of that room with great, great boldness in their life. And because they had a purpose. God gave them that purpose, and that's the next gift. Number four, there's an invitation here to a purpose. Look with me in uh, verse 21, just skipping ahead. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He's already told them that once or twice. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. What a commission. In fact, we find out in the Bible that our God is an evangelistic God. In Matthew, he says, go everywhere. And Mark, it said, he says to go with me. In Luke, he says, go with a promise. And right here, he says, go as I go. In Acts chapter 1, he says, go in my power, the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, you and I think to ourselves, well, yeah, we need to, to share what Jesus Christ has done for us. But the world sometimes doesn't understand that. And if you're listening, <coughs> excuse me, watching this today, and you're thinking, why do Christians have to proselytize? I mean, don't they know that brings about strife? in families, brings about strife in neighborhoods, in our society, when they preach the gospel? Why can't they just be satisfied with what they have and leave everybody else alone? Well, let me ask you this. Suppose, you know, I live out in a neighborhood, it's a good neighborhood, and we all got together and we decided, wow, we, I think we've discovered the cure to the coronavirus. And we all take it. And we're all be, we become immune cured and immune. And it's the new vaccination. And we think to ourselves, wow, this is really great, but maybe we ought to not share this with the rest of the world. I mean, after all, it bring about strife. You know, each democratic, each party is going to want to take credit for it. Each group's going to want to take credit. Somebody's going to say, well, that's not true. They're just doing it for a bad motive. And this, it's going to split families. It's going to split, you know, our society is looking pretty good right now. I mean, look, the roads are clear. And we come up with all kinds of reasons not to do it. No. We would do everything we could to get the message out and get that, that vaccine uh, replicated many, many times over in order to help the rest of the world. But can you imagine what was coming out of the Bible? Wow. They thought Jesus Christ not only was dead, but he was dead for good, never coming back. And yet with their own eyes, they saw the resurrected Lord. We'll find out in a moment with the nail prints in his hands, the scars still in his hands. And they were thrilled. They were changed. The Spirit of God came upon them and not only gave them the desire to share the hope that was within them, but also gave them the power 
to do just that. He said, after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, I will give you my power to be witnesses and through all the rest of the world, Acts 1.8. And so we look at this and we understand, we understand that there's, there's ministry that needs to be done. In fact, right now, we need to be as Christians ministering to those around us every chance we get. You say, wow, we're, aren't we taking a chance uh, of catching the virus if we do that? Well, you don't want to be... Um, and it, you don't want to be crazy about it. You want to be careful. But I'm reminded of the plagues in Rome. When everybody left, even their own loved ones in the street, to die. But it was the Christians who stayed behind and not only ministered to those that were dying in their own house, but also went out in the streets to get those, pull them into the house. In fact, the one thing that you could point back to that overcame the Roman Empire, where the Christians just really saturated the Roman Empire, was the ministry they had during the plague. That's one of the main things. So you and I can reach out. We can do things for people, whether it's by, through the Internet or whether it's one-on-one -on -one in person when there's a real need there. But, dear friends, the biggest need we all have is to know Christ, to come back to our original design of knowing God through Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Well, there's not only that great purpose that God gave us, but then there's probably the greatest gift of all. It's been called that anyway, and that is forgiveness. In verse 23, this is the other verse I said was very, very difficult. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, this has been used a lot of times as reasons why uh, people can come to us and get forgiveness as a, as a pastor or a priest. But really, this is pointing back to Matthew 16 again, where God says, look, I'm going to give you, Jesus said, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And making a long story short, they were given the keys to go in and preach the gospel. Now, what they were saying is, look, you've got the keys, and wherever you go to preach the gospel of forgiveness, that's where I'm going to offer forgiveness. If you don't go preach over here, I'm not going to offer that. Just where you say, well, I don't, I don't necessarily, well, I know there are three or four different arguments. I could preach on this for 45 minutes, but I don't have time this morning. Just to know, I want you to know, the message of this verse is you can receive forgiveness through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of things going on in history. There's a lot of things going on around us. But one of the things that we, <clears throat> we long for is to know that we have a place to start again, a mulligan, you know, like in golf, something you can do all over again. All of us yearn to go back in time and maybe change that one thing, that one thing to make it right. And okay, we can't do that, but we can make things right for the future. We can get forgiveness of all the past and, and have, have really a map and a strong push and a power to move into the future. Notice what happens to Thomas. Uh, now, Thomas was one of the 12, the twin. He's not, he's not with Jesus when he came. And so they said, look, we, we've seen Jesus. And Thomas said, unless I see the hands and marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. Now, this is just another skeptic that's saying, look, these disciples weren't just gullible, just believe in anything. They were just saying, look, right here, Thomas is saying, called Doubting Thomas. In fact, you can look it up in the dictionary, a couple of different dictionaries, in fact. And there's a definition there of a Doubting Thomas. 
And we talk about that, well, maybe I'm just kind of a doubting Thomas, but that's become a phrase, uh, poor Thomas. Actually, Thomas was not there with everybody else. Eight days later, the Bible says, Jesus came by and said, look, behold, my, the nail prints in my hands. Now, he said immediately, my Lord, verse 28, my Lord and my God. Wow. Didn't even have to feel them. He saw them. He didn't have to touch them. Why? He had to realize how in the world, first he recognized Jesus, but then he had to wonder, how in the world did Jesus, this man, know that I said those things unless he was there, unless he heard it, unless he is Lord and God? Then we read in verse 29 that Jesus really forgave him. He rebuked him, but he kind of forgave, he, he forgave him, kind of rebuked him, but he also forgave him as well. You and I go out and seek forgiveness in our life. Maybe the greatest gift of all. When you and I sin against someone, there's a deficit in our relationship. You do something wrong to a friend. There's a deficit there. There's something, there's a cloud there. There's a fog. There's a darkness. There's a shadow hanging over your relationship because you owe a debt. That's why Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us of our debts as we have forgiven others their debt. There is a deficit in the economy of your relationship with that person. When you and I sin against God, when we first did that, and Romans 3.23 says we all sinned, when we do that, when we break the commandments of God, things like, for example, uh, you shall not put any gods before me, first commandment. Have you ever done that? I have. Make no graven image or idol. Well, I haven't made a graven image, but I have put other things in my life in a big way ahead of God in my life. The Bible says that honor your father and your mother. Have you always done that every day? Have you broken that one? Have you lied? Have you lusted in your heart to commit adultery? Have you coveted? Have you wanted something that somebody else had and were resentful that they had it and you didn't? This, this is just the ten, first Ten Commandments we're talking about. All of us have sinned. And when we first sin against God, there's a deficit in God's economy. Nothing we can do to make up for that. And Jesus came along and paid the debt for us on the cross. When he cried out, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? At that point, he took on your sins and mine. We can be forgiven of everything that we, we've done, everything at the cross of Christ. But then lastly, as I close, we have an offer of eternal life. Verse 30, now Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. There's so many that couldn't be written. But then he says in verse 31, the verse I read a few moments ago, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. We fear death, don't we? Number one, fear. Number one fear of mankind is death. How can we get over that fear? Well, knowing that death is not annihilation, <coughs> excuse me, uh, all choked up there. Um, death is not annihilation. Death is separation. And we're, when we sin against God, we have a separation between us and God. And as Jesus stretched out on the cross and died there for our sins, he was the bridge 
between us and God. That's how much he loved you. That's what the resurrection shows. If it shows nothing else, and it, and it does, it shows us that he loves you just like you are and loves you too much to let you remain as you are and as I am. So he wants to change our life in a great way. There was a movie out several years ago, and it starred Robin Williams, great actor. Uh, he could be serious. He could be funny. But in this movie, as I recall, um, Fisher King, I saw it on television a few years ago. And it was about this lady that was um, really didn't have any confidence in herself. She didn't have any relationships with anyone, never went out on a date. And she always felt like anybody that got to know her very well would not like her anymore. And there was this man on the street, kind of a homeless guy, really, Robin Williams. And as the story goes, uh, a friend of his uh, dressed him up, gave him a, a new outfit, and uh, he went out on a date with this young lady. At the end of the date, in spite of the fact they had a great time, she just said, well, this is it. We won't be seeing each other anymore. And he said, why not? And she said, well, I've learned that when people get to know me, they don't like me anymore, and I don't want to go through that. And Robin Williams' character said, I've been noticing you from afar for a long time. And I've walked, I've seen how you've interacted with the people. I know that you're insecure. I know that you feel like no one loves you. I know you don't have any confidence in any of your abilities that you can do. And I know you run from commitment and run from relationships. And he goes on and on and on. But he says, in spite of all that, I love you. I love you. That'll change a person's life, won't it? God sees you right now. He knows you. He knows your every strength. He knows your every weakness. And yet He loves you anyway. He loves you just like you are. And He wants you to come back to His original design by having a close relationship with Him. And that can only come through Jesus Christ. That can only come through someone paying for your sins. The debt that you could not pay, someone paid it. Jesus Christ. So if you've never received Christ into your life, or you're not sure, really positive, that you're a Christian today, that if you were to die right now, you'd go to heaven, I want to invite you to receive Christ today on this Easter Sunday. What better way to celebrate Easter than have eternal life, and everything that goes with it. Won't you pray with me now? With heads bowed and eyes closed, right there in your home, I would invite you to pray this prayer with me. As I pray here, you can just repeat the words after me if you mean them in your heart. Lord God, Lord, I know that I've fallen short. And I know because of that, you died on the cross for me to pay my debt. I know the blood that you poured out was for me. Your sacrifice was for me. And right now, I humble myself before you. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. Come into my life. Come into my heart. And help me, guide me, give me the power to live as I should live with the joy that has been marked out for me. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.